Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. This is the African Liberation Media, we typically tell a story that the corporate media does not tell. The day's date is 2020, February 23rd or 6260. We will delve into politics. Suffice it to say we have a white supremacist president, but racism is bipartisan. The affinity for the mercenary Michael Bloomberg is indicative of the fact that in a real sense, it seems to me, brother, that we clamor for our own enslavement. How can we neglect his record? We turn it over now to Brother Amos. Baby for Hodie African family, this is Brother Amos here with African Liberation Media. And today, we're interviewing Brother T. West of Afrosynergy News. And this brother has been doing programs uh, for a very long time on YouTube, has a, a very large following, dealing with uh, geopolitical and current events that relate to us as African people, not only here in America, but also in the diaspora. And uh, Brother West, um, I know that uh, you, from what I can remember, going back to 2015, you were the first, if not the only, black independent news that predicted that Donald Trump would be president. Uh, I remember specifically during the Republican primaries, a lot of people thought that it was a joke or a publicity stunt, and you were one of the first to say that not only will Trump win the primaries, but that he would also be the next president. So what gave you that insight early on to be able to see and, and, and make such a bold prediction the way that you did? Oh, brother, that is, uh, that is an excellent question. Uh, back in August of 2015, I did do a program, and you're probably referring to that program, of uh, why Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States. What I stated back then was that the United States was an industrial power at one time, a big industrial power. You had a lot of factories. You had a lot of manufacturing and making and producing of goods in America. But all of that, most of that was shipped off to Mexico first and then shipped off to Asia. And some of it was shipped off to Western Europe and even parts of Eastern Europe. And it came at a time also when African-Americans it was the opportunity for African-Americans to excel, to really excel economically in this country. But Wall Street, uh, T. Boone Pickens and uh, others, they were selling things off through uh, leveraged buyouts, uh, selling it off to uh, Asian countries, Mexican countries and companies. And uh, that being the case, I indicated that Trump's message at that time was, I'm going to bring those manufacturing jobs back to America, which 
which was contrasting with what Obama had said. He said that those manufacturing jobs would never return to America. So that message from Trump was resonating with um, voters because many voters in Rust Belt states and in other states that had a large manufacturing base at one time, those voters were very concerned because their parents had worked in uh, manufacturing plants, auto manufacturing plants, other type, types of uh, manufacturing plants, and most of them got a good retirement when they retired. So the younger generation that was coming along, uh, especially among white, blue-collar workers, they said, well, this guy is saying the right thing. He's talking the right message. And that also said that uh, China... Uh, who is uh, a very one of the world's most foremost manufacturing nations, that almost all of their politicians are not lawyers. They are engineers. They're builders. They're makers of things. And here it is. You have Donald Trump, a builder of buildings and all uh, in construction, who is running for president. So it was the right timing that Trump came into the equation because America had, had become mostly a service economy instead of a manufacturing economy. And Chairman Mao, who was the leader of China decades ago, he said that he's going to make China great by what they can do with their hands, by making and producing things. And America itself, actually, was at its greatest when it was making things, but it was being made through African-Americans, through black folks, through chattel slavery. They were producing things uh, uh, from uh, uh, cotton, from uh, sugarcane, from tobacco, and other products. They were being produced by an enslaved uh, labor pool. So uh, when Trump came on board saying and stating that, look, I'm going to bring these jobs back to America. I'm going to create, I'm going to expand the economy. And not only that, I'm also going to end this business of regime change, these wars, these endless wars over in foreign countries, which has cost the United States over $7 trillion since the time of Bush and Cheney, even through Obama, over $7 trillion. That's money that would go into the domestic economy. So Trump, his message was, I'm going to rebuild your infrastructure. I'm going to rebuild your economy. I'm going to bring uh, rejuvenation to urban areas, to uh, uh, areas, black communities and all. Now, that's in spite of the fact that uh, most blacks look at Donald Trump as a racist, as a bigot. Okay? They look at him that way. But Lyndon B. Johnson was also a bigot and a racist. But he made a deal with Martin Luther King Jr., and Martin Luther King was a Republican at that time, and Lyndon B. Johnson was a Democrat. So they put aside their political uh, uh, differences in order for both of them at that period of, in, of time, for both of them to win. And African-American females have not looked back since. They've been voting uh, loyally Democrat ever since. And let's not forget, Lyndon B. Johnson also said, you know, with this right here, when I signed this civil rights legislation in 1964, I'll have these niggers voting Democrat for the next 100 years. Mm. So uh, so we have to look at what's in our interest. As African-American people, what's in our best interest? 
one thing that I like about Trump, one, one big thing I like about it is that you will not hear Trump say people of color. You won't hear him say that. You'll hear Trump say when he's talking to African-Americans, he will say African-Americans. And generally, he'll, he'll say African-Americans first. Then he'll go on to uh, Hispanic-Americans, Asian-Americans. But it's African-Americans first. Why first? Because we were the first seed that built the great wealth of this nation <coughs> in chattel slavery, more than 244 years of chattel slavery. So Trump recognizes that. Even if people do believe, some, most African-Americans believe and think and say, hey, he's a racist, he's a white supremacist, he's this, he's that. Okay? But Lyndon B. Johnson was the same. He was a Democrat. All right. So, um, uh, uh, so basically, once again, just to summarize in a sentence, the reason why I knew that Trump was going to win was because Trump was articulating the right message for the right time. And I knew that Hillary did not have the right message. She had a negative message about black folk. Okay? She made negative statements about black people. And let's not forget that Hillary Clinton, in her early years, she was a, a Barry Goldwater girl. Okay? She was a Republican that went over to uh, the Democrat Party. All right. So a lot of her ideology uh, mirrored that of uh, Goldberg, when uh, Goldberg was living, who was the long-term senator uh, for the state of Arizona. So anyway, uh, in a nutshell, there it is. Okay, all right. So um, looking at the way that Trump was able to win the election, there were a lot of things that he did that were revolutionary if you could say in the political realm the way that he utilized social media the way that independent independent media played a role in portraying a different message than the mainstream media did and the way he utilized twitter um we know that the the onslaught and the attack that they did on alex jones has tried to neutralize his influence um, and I think a lot of that has been done in preparation for this current election that's uh, taking place now. Um, do you feel that, first of all, do you feel that over the past four years that Trump has lived up to what he campaigned on in 2016? And then secondly, um, do you think it's going to be difficult or more difficult for him this time around, now that they've had some preparation to sort of try to neutralize a lot of the things or the methods that he used originally? Uh, For the most part, I think Trump has lived up to what he campaigned on in uh, 2015. Um, He's lived up to most of that. A few things I disagree with uh, relative to Trump, but there are many things, especially domestically, that I agree with. Uh, this whole illegal immigration, illegal alien situation, I agree with Trump's position on that, okay? Because illegal immigration has harmed and hurt African Americans the most in this country. And it was not just by happenstance that during the um, uh, last State of the Union speech, 
that Trump called out and spotlighted African Americans. And rightfully so, because uh, they have usually gotten all and most of the negative attention in this country. And Trump was acknowledging the fact that African Americans deserve better. They deserve much better, in spite of what he said and what he put in the uh, uh, pay for for the New York Times back in the 1990s with the Central Park Five. In spite of all of that, okay, we have to move forward. We can't remain stuck in 1990 with Central Park Five. That situation, like some African Americans, uh, due to pressure from mainstream media, want to remain stuck on that. Okay, to move forward, you have to come to the table with an agenda. African Americans, their agenda, not an agenda that somebody else, a political candidate, produced for you. Not that. No, you go to them with your agenda, and that's why we produce the African Americans National Political Agenda, something that we stand for, something that we demand, something that uh, uh, indicates who we are and what we stand for. Now, so so with again with Trump's um, uh, performance since he's been in office. He's done most of what he said he was going to do with a lot of opposition, a lot of opposition. Uh, In spite of that opposition, he's had some victories. But uh, the fight continues. The Democrats are fighting him tooth and nails. And for good reason, they're fighting him tooth and nails. For good reason, not that they're right, but for good reason. And the good reason is, uh, on the part of Democrats, is because they don't want to lose the most loyal voting block in this country, which is African-Americans. They don't want to lose that. The Democrat bosses do not want to lose that. But yet, they haven't given much of anything for decades to the African-American communities. And the reason why we know that is because we see it reflected in the wealth gap in America. The wealth gap between black and white in America is actually increasing, not decreasing. And that is because uh, here in the United States of America, what was done for white people in America, which primarily created that great wealth gap, has never been done for African Americans. And we're talking about land-grant acts, um, uh, free giveaway of land, okay, to white people, not to black people. Black people did not uh, uh, prosper from any of that because they did not get that. So, uh, and that is the biggest creator of wealth in this country is ownership of property. And because property, you can hand down from generation to generation to generation. And generally, the value of property goes up, not down, generally. So uh, that wealth gap has to be decreased So the way you do that is through some form of reparations. Land-grant acts, homestead acts, that was a form of uh, reparations, undeserved, however, for white folks, okay? Non-black people. Other people benefited from that. So uh, our goal uh, over the next few months is to push and promote Trump to produce an executive order to promote uh, reparations. Now, once you produce that executive order, similar to, for example, the HBCUs, Trump started with an executive order first. And once he did that, that helped 
force members of Congress of both parties to produce legislation, permanent funding for HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. So uh, when Trump said African-Americans, come on, let's talk. What do you have to lose? Come on, let's talk. Okay, that was an invitation. That was not an insult, as mainstream media would like for black folks to believe, which is a form of social engineering with and against black people trying to interpret something for black folks in the opposite way that it was intended. So when someone invites me to the table, I'm going to go to the doggone table and I'm going to say, yeah, uh uh-huh, this is what I want. I want this, I want this, I want that. You invited me after all. Okay, now you can kick me away from the table if you want to, but at least you invited me, I'm here. Now prove to me that your invitation is legitimate. Prove to me that it's genuine, okay? So with Trump, for African-Americans, in spite of the fact if you believe that he's a racist or not, for African-Americans, the way you get more as a group of people is through working through that system, that that invitation system that Mr. Trump has offered. Not by throwing rocks at him, because... Members of the Congressional Black Caucus, they can't and they don't give you a pot to piss in. That's right. They don't. They don't have the power to do it. Nancy Pelosi don't have the power to do it. But that racist, that orange man, that bigot in the White House, just like Lyndon B. Johnson, he has the power of the pen. He has the power of the bully pulpit of the White House. He's got that. He has that. And uh, the Democrats don't. Chuck Schumer in the Senate, he don't. He doesn't have that. Okay, so there was a second part to your question. but So, so, so Trump is on, he's mostly on, um, uh, on schedule as far as delivering certain things domestically here. He's mostly on schedule with that. Now, also, what came out recently was that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, that uh, Trump is changing the judges on the Ninth Circuit. Okay, that's good for African-Americans. Why? Because the Ninth Circuit has been one of the biggest supporters and promoters of illegal alien um, scenarios, uh, sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, those types of things. Okay, so the mainstream media would, would have black folks in America to believe that um, this is something evil that Trump is promoting. It is not. It is not. Because when you look at the wealth gap in America between black and white and between black and Hispanics, when you look at the wealth gap, what you see is more and more African-Americans are falling further and further behind at the expense of someone else, some other groups being moved forward. And we cannot tolerate that any longer. We as a people, we have to have an agenda, and we have to adhere to what that agenda is in order for us to collectively, as a group, as a people, to move forward. When Hispanics, legal and illegal, when they congregate and produce large numbers through illegal immigration and childbirth also, when they do that, they take over cities, they take over states. That's what they do. 
And here in the uh, southeastern region of the United States, we still have nearly 40% of blacks still reside in the southeastern region. Blacks are leaving California, and that's good. But what we're saying to them is come on back home to the black Mecca. Come on back home to the southeastern region. Create your majorities in those regions, and then you can produce the laws, the ordinances, to benefit your collective group as Hispanics are doing in California, Colorado, and other states, New York, across this country. They're doing this, okay, at the expense of African Americans, under the banner, the so-called people of color banner. So what was the second part of your question right there for this? The second part was uh, what, as far as the methods that Trump used in 2015, They've tried to neutralize a lot of those methods over the last four years from the fake news uh, attack to um, trying to ban certain prominent independent news media people from social media. Um, Do you think it's going to be more difficult for him in this upcoming election because of that? And also, you know, the other attacks, you know, um, the Russia scandal and everything. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the Russian boss, uh, Adolf. Uh, Russian bots with Adolf and all. Okay, all of that, are th- those are lies coming from the so-called intelligence community here in the United States. All lies. You know, Seth Rich was murdered because he leaked information from the Democrat National Committee. So he was killed for that. And they tried to make it appear like, oh, well, it was just a robbery. But Seth Rich was, was murdered. So, and they want to blame it on Russia. Like right now, they want to, uh, they're saying that Trump is on a path to win again in 2020 because of Russia. Okay? They're also saying uh, that Bernie Sanders is on the path to win the Democrat nomination for president because of Russia. Okay? So everything, now you know, this is just like the, the childhood story of the boy that cried wolf. Okay? Now, now they sold the Democrat Party. They have sold these whoop tickets too often, and now people are saying, "No, no, 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 we don't believe this." Okay, now why Bernie Sanders? Well, they don't want Bernie Sanders because they know that they know for sure that Trump will defeat Bernie Sanders, and they don't want uh, Bernie Sanders' pipe dream. Bernie Sanders wants to give away. Uh, you know, uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in free this, free that, you know, free college education, forgiveness of college debt, um, and then um, uh, uh, free health care, all of that. Bernie Sanders is promising you the stars, the moons, and everything in the heavens, and he can't produce all of that. After all, he's an independent. He just caucuses with the Democrats, okay? Yeah, uh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders would be uh, pretty much dysfunctional if he was to become president. So, but... He won't be able to beat Trump anyway. So back to Trump, uh, so they're saying, well, okay, we know that Trump is on the path to win uh, the re-elections here. So therefore, George Soros, he attacks Facebook executives, okay? He attacks two of the executives and says that he wants them out of Facebook and that he's he's trying to buy enough shares within Facebook to oust uh, two of the top executives in Facebook. Why? Because... Facebook is not doing the bidding politically of George Soros totally. They aren't totally going along with it. So George Soros wants them out. He's using his billions to try to do that. So uh, with social media, Trump is still very effective in social media. Some things that he tweets, 
a few things. I'm like, no, 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 that was not smart. Don't tweet things like that. Like, for example, recently when he tweeted about uh, Roger Stone and that whole uh, uh, Department of Justice situation. Okay, that was not a good idea. That was that was that was a mistake on the part of Mr. Trump. But for the most part, his tweeting, his other social media uh, 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 postings, overall, that's good. They don't like it. Otherwise, if the Democrats liked it, they wouldn't have George Soros out there trying to curb and stop the momentum of a Donald Trump out there in social media. So, and social media also played a huge role in Trump's victory. Not only what Trump was saying in social media, but what channels like Afro News and others were saying in social media, they were saying the opposite, I know I was, of what mainstream media was saying. Hillary Clinton, she's got it in the bag. She's got it in the bag. There's no way that Donald Trump can defeat these seasoned Republican candidates for president. There's no way. And I told them, oh, Donald Trump was going to walk through them like they weren't even there. And he did. Okay? And then he's also going to dispatch of Hillary Clinton. And he did. This was coming from social media. While MSNBC, uh, CNN, and others, uh, Fox News included, they were saying uh, that Hillary Clinton, she's going to win. She's got it in the bag. She's going to win. It's a slam dunk. That's what they were saying. But social media, Energy News, and others in social media, they were saying, no, that's not the case. The polls are wrong. The polls are lying. They're wrong. They don't get it. Okay? So um, uh, I, 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 I'm sure that uh, social media will continue to aid and help Trump to victory in 2020. But the Democrats, they've gotten and become more savvy in the use of social media as well. But it won't be good enough. They tried to impeach, they failed. Okay? And I know some are saying, well, but he did get impeached, you know. I'm like, that was not an impeachment. That was only, those were only Democrats <laughs> in the House who signed on to that impeachment. It was not bipartisan. It was a, it was a political thing. So, uh, uh, effectively, Trump is still there, doing business as usual, moving forward. <coughs> Excuse me. Moving forward. And that's a good thing. So, but for African Americans, we have to put forward our agenda. And as I said before, that's why I produced a 21-point agenda, the African American's national political agenda. I produced that uh, as a guideline to uh, move our situation forward. Not people of color. We're African Americans. Others out there call themselves ADOS. But still, African Americans moving us forward. All right. So go ahead. You had an, uh, did you have uh, another question? Yeah, yes, a uh, question for you, uh, Dr. Gullajacked here. Um, Trump has referred to himself as the deal maker. Can you go into specifics regarding a deal that he's made with the North Koreans, Iran, and do you have any specifics regarding uh, what he meant when he talked about entitlement reform? I remember Paul Ryan uh, talked about the probability of cutting Medicare. Of course, you know, Obamacare with all of its flaws, a little bit of something that's better than nothing, but does he have a specific plan, okay, uh, in, in terms of health proposals going forward for brothers like me over 60? I mean, if you live long enough, you're going to have 
some health issues. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, let's deal with the last part of your question, and then we're going to go back to the first your first question, and then I want you to articulate that first question again. Okay. So in the area of healthcare. In the area of healthcare, as you know, uh, and you and you and I, we're in the same generation. Okay, uh, when you come become a certain age here in the United States of America, we know that uh, Medicaid, Medicare, Medicare uh, kicks in. You know, even if you didn't pay in much into it in your lifetime, we know for medical issues and everything, we know that that kicks in. Now, the the healthcare, uh, Obamacare. That was more so than for uh, older people or seniors. That was more for younger people, especially coming along, because you had a lot of young people who didn't have uh, health care. They didn't have health care or they didn't have good health care. That was uh, more so of what uh, what was called Obamacare. Uh, that's what that was for primarily because the seniors in this country uh, for decades, uh, they've had at least a safety net for seniors here in this country. But for the younger people, uh, you didn't have as much of a safety net unless you were working for a company that offered good health care. You didn't have that. So the health care was more for them. Now, there are other components or parts of health care also. For example, uh, pharmaceuticals, drugs and all, uh, which drugs are tremendously, tremendously overpriced, which uh, Trump has uh, made a move to reduce the pricing on drugs. And he's had some success with that. And uh, there needs to be more success with that because pharmaceutical companies, uh, they earn literally, you know, over $100 billion a year. The top three uh, profit industries in the world are pharmaceuticals, oil and gas, and banking and finance. Those are the three top profit makers in the world. So pharmaceutical companies, uh, they can dramatically reduce the prices on their drugs. And those drugs, uh, lots of seniors require drugs and use these drugs, uh, dialysis drugs, other drugs for for different things. Uh, But the pharmaceutical companies, they overprice those things. So you need to have some legislation to reduce uh, the pricing on that because, you know, in Canada, you know, you can get the drugs for a fraction of the price. In, in, in Western Europe, you can get the same drugs for a fraction of the price. So uh, they're gouging the American citizens with that. So any effort on Mr. Trump's part, the Democrats and the Republicans, all of them should, should have a vested interest in going after those pharmaceutical companies who have been making out in profits like bandits. Okay, so uh, um, that's what I wanted to say uh, to that relative to health care and, and uh, uh, drugs, pharmaceutical drugs and all. Much can be done, much more can be done in that area by Trump, the Democrats, and the Republicans. Now, what was the first question that you asked well you know one of part of his mantra was that he was a deal maker yeah okay what deal has he made with kim in north korea what deal has he made with the iranian government 
in terms of a de-escalation of um, nuclear capability. Uh, of course, um, you know, if, if you could deal with those issues and, uh, you know, I guess the third thing I want to know is um, Zionist expansion, you know, as it relates to the Palestinian situation, uh, just the mm -hmm. constant seizing of land, the genocidal practices that are taking place, you know, what, 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 what are Trump's positions um, as it relates to that? And, uh, you know, while we at it, does he have a Marshall Plan? Uh, as it relates to the core city, people who live in places like Baltimore, beyond just calling them uh, uh, disparaging names as it relates to Baltimore, you know, he had this ongoing conflict with um, the senator um, who recently passed in Baltimore. Um, I can't recall the name. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Cummings, Representative Cummings. Uh, disparaging comments as it relates to um, uh, Chicago as well. And uh, I mean, if you just look at Vidare.com, his top policy advisor uh, is, you know, racist to the core, Stephen Miller. I mean, I'm just not, you know, this doesn't come from the mainstream media. I have read his stuff. Uh, Vidare.com, okay. the guy who's in Trump's ear. Okay, okay. Let, let, me just, let me just pause for a moment here. Okay, I want to get to all the questions that you have here, but I want to do it one at a time. Let, and, and keep your point. Keep, please keep your point. Let me go to this deal maker first, and then and then we're going to walk down through each one one at a time. Okay, because I'm not going to retain all of the questions that you have. Okay, then I want to deal with each one, but one at a time. Okay. Okay. All right. So the deal maker situation. All right, with Kim in North Korea, no deal has been made between Trump and uh, Kim, the Pre leader of North Korea. Appreciate no deal has been made right there with that. Appreciate so the honesty. Is, pardon? Go ahead, go ahead, doctor. So no deal has been made with that, even though Trump politically and rhetorically is talked about, you know, I'm going I'm to make a deal or I made a deal with uh, Kim Jong-un uh, of North Korea. Okay, that's political rhetorical jargon. That's all that is. All right, all right. so now uh, that's to appease uh People like uh, uh, Mad Dog, Chicken Hawk, John Bolton, that type of neocon uh, uh, personality. Okay, that's all that is. All right, so we have to see through that for what it is. Now, the bottom line is this. North Korea has not attacked the United States. North Korea is not threatening right now to attack the United States. That's not happening. Okay, now, uh, North Korea has every right to self-defense. No doubt. It has every right to produce missile technology, even nuclear technology. They have every right to do that. Every right. Now, Trump knows that, but of course he's not going to politically come out and say what I'm saying right now. That's political death. Okay? So he's not going to say that. Uh, but it has every right to do so. You know, European countries, they have nukes, some of them. All right? The United States, of course, ha have news. Israel, even though it doesn't acknowledge it, it has news. All right. So now, that's my. Uh, m those are my thoughts about North Korea. That is a uh, situation, an ongoing situation, right there, and it's been ongoing for 
uh, the last few decades uh, during George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now Donald Trump. It's an ongoing situation. And then also you have, you mentioned uh, Iran. Iran, just like North Korea, Iran has every right to self-defense. Every right. Every right to missile technology. Even nuclear. However, Iran does not have a nuclear bomb. Now, this is where Donald Trump and I uh, disagree at. We disagree about Iran. Iran has not uh, started wars in other countries, overthrown countries militarily. The United States has, and is still trying to do that, okay? Iran right now do not have a nuclear weapon. And we know about America lying, its intelligence community, and George W. Bush lying about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. And I'm talking about civilians. If you include military personnel, then the number will probably go up into over a million killed by the U.S. and its so-called coalition of the willing in Iraq. Now, so with Iran, what Donald Trump is doing, he is trying to do the bidding of Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel. That's what he's trying to do. That's why he, he stepped away from the Obama uh, agreement with Iran. He stepped away, Trump stepped away from it. Okay, he stepped out of that. All right. And that was not good, not good at all on the part of Mr. Trump. Okay, a big mistake. But once again, who is Trump feeding with that? He's feeding the likes of Mad Dog, Chicken Hawk, John Bolton. He's feeding uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's feeding those people with that, those sorts of and types of uh, decisions and policies. That's what he's doing. Well, but, but, not, but we know right. Bolton is gone. See, Zionism is racism to the core. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We, we, we agree. Yes, I agree. Okay. I agree. You know, in the in, when was it? Uh, two thousand or two thousand one? Uh, the 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 uh, Durban uh, conference on racism. You know, uh, Colin Powell was Secretary of State at that time. At first, he said he wasn't going to go, but eventually. What they did, they did send some U.S. delegates to Durban, South Africa. And the Israelis, they had their representatives there, too. And when the U.N. body there, those uh, uh, the, the, the consensus there was that Zionism is one of the worst forms of racism. Well, what did the Israelis do? What did the Americans do? They got up and walked out of there hand in hand at that Durban conference in uh, South Africa. So... Yes, we're in total agreement with regards to that. After all, you know, Israel was the last nation state to withdraw its support for apartheid South Africa. The last. So, and, and, and I can go into great detail about uh, some of the uh, power uh, uh, brokers and movers relative to Israel, both in Israel and here in the United States and elsewhere. I can go into that, but I, but I won't. I, I'll just surmise it by saying that I do not agree with Donald Trump's policy relative to the Palestinians. What you had with the Palestinians, you had a high birth rate for a long time with the Palestinian people 
in the uh, Palestinian territories. And over time, what has happened, the Israelis, through uh, various forms of genocide, the Israelis have dramatically reduced the birth rates of Palestinian people. Now, why? The reason why is because if there was never going to be a Palestinian state, the Palestinians would, by uh, uh, de facto population birth rate, they would take over the um, they would take over the situation there in um, in um, uh, Israel by the sure fact of their birth rate. They would take over, but the Israelis, through various means, have reduced the population growth, birth rate, of Palestinian people. And here's an example also. In Israel, you have what was once called Beta Israel. Beta Israel were Ethiopians uh, who identified as Jews who were brought to Israel in the late 1980s. What the Israelis were doing, they were secretly sterilizing young Ethiopian women. Secretly. Okay, why? It's the whole birth rate scenario. Well, they've been doing ugly things to Palestinians, uh, shooting and laming uh, young Palestinian men and boys. Even organ harvesting. They kill Palestinian youth. And then they take their body and they strip the eye corneas from them and then sew their eyes shut so that the, their parents will not know when they get their body back that their organs have been removed, that their uh, eye corneas or, or other organs have been removed, especially the eye cornea. This is uh, stated fact. This is history. These are things that I've dealt with here on this channel here. Okay? So Israel is ground zero for legal organ harvesting. You saw in 2011 when the United States, under Barack Obama, with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, when they invaded Libya based upon lies, just like Bush and Cheney invaded Iraq based upon lies, when they invaded Libya, well, it didn't take long at all before we discovered that Africans, black Africans in Libya, were being killed and their organs being harvested in Libya. And then after that, we heard about the slave auction black folks being sold as slaves in Libya. This was a result of the policies of Barack Hussein Obama and Hillary Clinton, along with their European power, uh, uh, partners, uh, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy of France and David Cameron of Britain. It was a result of all of that. And Turkey also played a role in that as well. Turkey did. So when we talk about, when we talk about uh, a situation where um, uh, Syria, with Syria, we see under the Obama administration, hundreds of thousands of Syrians of various religious faiths were slaughtered by terrorists who mostly came from France and they came through Turkey to get into um, uh, Syria. And they destroyed most of the infrastructure in Syria. 
That's all a result of U.S. policy under the Obama administration. Now, what did Trump say? Trump says, I want to end these wars. I want all of the American troops removed from Syria. Now, when he said that, what did the Pentagon say? The Pentagon said, oh, we need to protect the oil. So what did Trump do? Trump backed away and said, oh, okay, just keep them there to protect the oil area in Syria. That's what Trump said. So, um, but anyway, uh, that's what I wanted to say with regards to foreign policy relative to Iran, to Israel, Syria, Iraq. All of that is bad policy. And it has caused the U.S. government literally trillions of dollars. And those are trillions of dollars that should have long been a down payment on reparations for the 244-plus years of chattel slavery and then the ugly sisters for more than 100 years of chattel slavery. You know, Jim Crow, sharecropping, lynching, uh, uh, all that, burnouts, Black Wall Street, burned out, Rosewood. In Florida, burned out. Many, many black communities burned out by uh, savage whites here in America with the support of government in America. That's why uh, African Americans are owed reparations. Now, let's go on to uh, the other parts of your question also. I got... uh... I wanted I wanted to uh, just change the focus just a bit. This is a uh, brother Makaru uh, regarding uh, the root causes of our problems, rather than these flamethrowers talking about immigration and whatnot. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you uh, I, I got three things really, and uh, I'll go through one each one. Um, one deals with um, the massive. Um, increase in black male unemployment between 1970 and 2010. The second one deals with the massive loss of black wealth as a result of the Great Recession. And the third deals with um, what is really happening with the manufacturing sector as a result of uh, Trump's trade war with China. Uh, the first, the first part. Uh, the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee did a study of black male employment and unemployment between 1970 and 2010. I, I'll give just a, a few of the statistics that um, that they used. And to be honest with you, I don't know how they calculated unemployment. We know that Sick Willie Clinton changed the way unemployment was calculated in the 1990s. And today, the, the, the official U.S. Uh, unemployment rate isn't worth a hill of beans because they don't count everybody that's, uh, that's unemployed. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll go with their statistics. Um, in 1970, I, I'll just give you a couple of cities. In 1970, in Milwaukee, uh, these were black males between the ages of 16 and 64 who were employed. Milwaukee, 73.4%. In 2010, it was down to 44.7. Detroit, 71.6%. In 2010, it was down to 43%. Chicago, 1970, uh, 72.1%. In 2010, it was down to 48.3%. Cleveland, 1970, 73.7%. 2010, down to 47.7%. Charlotte, 1970, 79.2%. 
2010, 56.5%. The root cause of this unemployment primarily is a result of the the decision by the U.S. Uh, capitalist class to to deindustrialize these these urban areas by uh, moving these jobs uh, to low cost geographies. That that's that's the primary reason for uh, the the massive increase in uh, in black male unemployment. You know, it hadn't had nothing to do with immigrants coming in. The capitalist class decided that they were going to move these jobs to low-cost geographies. And the fact of the matter is, those jobs have not come back. And we don't see anything on the horizon that suggests that they are coming back. Uh, would you uh, care to respond to that? Uh, yes. Uh, I thank you for the statistics because, uh, yeah, you did have that scenario uh, happening over those decades. Now, uh, for those who are online, they're looking at a chart. And I've used this chart quite often. Uh, and, and it's over, it's a trend over uh, at least about a 20 year period. And it's, what it shows is the trajectory on a graph of young black males being incarcerated in the United States. And then to the right of that, it shows uh, another chart of illegal immigration into the United States. The trajectory on both charts are virtually the same for basically the same period of time. So as black, young black men, of which uh, I think it's around about at least 20% or more, 25% of black males, if they don't uh, get a diploma out of high school, at least 25% of them are going to end up in prison in America. Now, but what you see in this chart, you see the trajectory of both illegal immigration and black male incarceration mimicking each other in trajectory, okay? And then when they finally leveled off, they leveled off at the same time. So illegal immigration has had a huge negative, not positive, negative impact on blacks in America, black employment, especially black males. It used to be you would see black men, young black men, working at construction sites, hanging drywall, doing the painting, uh, doing... Uh, at least some of those uh, labor tasks. Now it's very difficult to find young black men out there doing those things. You'll find a lot of Hispanics doing it across the country, in Milwaukee, Chicago, you name it, across the country. That is what you will find. So, yes, you're right about when in the 1980s, when they started moving manufacturing jobs out of America into Mexico first, then into China and Asia, Taiwan, China, and Ireland and other places. They started moving those jobs out of this country. Yes, that affected black employment numbers here in the United States. But it was not the only one, and it was not the main, main determinant. For a short period of time, you know, maybe, let's say, I'd estimate 
10 years that was the case. But after that 10-year period, let's say it puts you in, uh, in 1990, after that period, the far bigger effect was the millions and millions of illegal aliens coming into the United States to compete for the lower-skilled jobs that African-Americans, many of them had been getting, especially those who did not have a, college, a, a high school diploma, okay? So you had a multiple effect, not just jobs, manufacturing jobs going overseas, and some of them have come back, and he is coming back. Um, uh, uh, one example is Apple. Apple has its manufacturing plants for the phones and computers over in Asia, but now Apple is building a manufacturing plant in Austin, Texas, okay? So some of these things are, in fact, coming back. Over, In fact, over 200,000 manufacturing jobs have been created in the last over the last three years here in the United States. We have to remember that Obama said that those jobs, those manufacturing jobs, would never return to the United States. He was wrong, okay? And if you, if you have uh, resolutely decided that that's the case, then you, as a leader, you're not going to do the things to encourage those jobs coming back to the United States. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I, under, I understand that. But what I'm saying is that is that black males were working in jobs that were decent paying, middle class uh, manufacturing jobs in steel mills, uh, tire factories, other places. I don't know if you've ever seen the the documentary uh, that uh, Brother Bone Clee Sloan produced, uh, Bastards of the Party. He has a segment in there where he does an interview uh, with um, a journalist in Los Angeles, and this guy names about 15 companies, Westinghouse and General Electric and others, that were located in the central uh, city of Los Angeles, and, and, and all of those jobs went away. Yeah, quite naturally, when those uh, black males were unemployed, uh you know, the uh, white power structure expanded the welfare state. Uh, the removal of the black males from homes while you, you had a lot of young black males being uh, being raised in single parent families. We had a massive introduction of drugs that uh, then allowed uh, uh, Tricky Dick Nixon to declare a war on drugs. Uh, you know, we had the massive introduction of heroin followed by the massive introduction of crack. So more so than than uh, the increasing black uh, incarceration because his uh, Hispanics or whoever were coming in. This was, as Michelle Alexander pointed out, a calculated uh, decision by the power structure uh, to implement the third cycle of white supremacy in America, black uh, massive uh, incarceration of young black males who uh, were identified as the target of COINTELPRO by J. Edgar Hoover. What do we do about these young black people that are joining the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army? We, gotta, we have to do something about them. So we go unemploy their fathers. 
They're going to be raised in single-parent families. We're going to put drugs in the community to become the uh, economy. And then we're going to arrest them. So, I mean, I, I, I think your chart is somewhat disingenuous because you, you, have, to, you have to consider what, what, what is the major cause for, the, for this uh, massive incarceration. It is uh, the attack on the black family, which led to, leads to the disintegration of the black family, the attack on the black liberation movement, the assassinations of people like Bunchy Carter and Fred Hampton, uh, the, the, the war on drugs, which leads to uh, what uh, Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. All of these factors have to have to be considered. And at the same time, these black males who were able to uh, get uh, jobs at, uh, you know, uh, United States Steel and uh, these other companies and send their children off to uh, colleges and whatnot ha have, have been, uh, you know, eviscerated. So we have to consider all of these factors. I, I just I just I don't see how we can just say, well, immigration is the reason. Now you can say. Uh, after these black after these jobs have been moved to low cost geographies, that the jobs that replace them, these low paying jobs uh, in these various, uh, you know, industries and, you know, agriculture and uh, lawn care and, you know, and the construction jobs are, you know, paid decently. But I mean, you know, the housing bubble wiped them out. Now, now they're coming back to to a certain extent, these black males, are, a lot a lot of these black males are not being employed because a lot of them are walking around with felonies and misdemeanors that that resulted from the drug war. <laughs> I mean, these are these are the things we have to consider. But OK, but let me let me just move on to another factor. And that is the uh, the impact of the Great Recession. By some estimates, the Great Recession uh, caused an increase, uh, caused a decrease of black wealth by over $200 billion. The, the subprime lending crisis, uh, the, the, uh, the decision to allow Lehman Brothers to collapse, uh, black wealth uh, decreased, uh, depending on whose study you want to use, the Pew Research Center or others, uh, somewhere between 43 and 63%. You know, so Bernie Sanders just split the middle. He said black, black people lost 50% of their wealth as a result of the Great Recession, we can't blame that on immigration. That was a decision being made by oligarchs on Wall Street who were meeting at the New York Fed in September of uh, 2008. And they decided that uh, how are we going to get out of this jam that, that we put ourselves in as a result of all of these derivatives, collateralized debt obligations and all these other things. How are we going to get out of this? Well, we're going to let Lehman Brothers collapse and then we're going to say uh, you got to bail us out because, you know, uh, we're too big to fail rather than bailing out the homeowners. You know, my home was foreclosed on, for example, uh, as a result of these shenanigans that they were playing on uh, Wall Street. These were decisions by the, the oligarchs, the capitalist class uh, of the United States. Uh, we can't blame that on immigration. Go ahead, brother. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, uh, there was no disingenuousness uh, with the statement that I and the chart that I provided on illegal immigration and black incarceration. I posted that and that was from you mentioned Pew Research. That was from Pew Research. Both of the charts that Pew Research did not put them side by side. I actually got the one chart on Hispanic uh, illegal immigration into the United States. 
Pew Research, and then I got it from a Pew Research, the other chart of black incarceration for the same time frame. That was Pew Research. So you, you mentioned Pew Research. So there was no uh, uh, disingenuousness uh, with that. Now, as I stated, uh, you have multiple factors, and I use that phrase, multiple factors that were at play and that are still at play with black um, uh, low in unemployment, but more specifically, the wealth gap between black and white. Now, we can articulate what the problems are, and you, you've articulated what the problems are, but it is most important that we be able to articulate how we're going to address these uh, ongoing problems within the black community. We know about the drugs. We know about that. Yes. Uh, we know about heroin, uh, the, the uh, Harlem Renaissance. Okay, what did they introduce? 1920s, 1930s in Harlem? Heroin. That hit the black community. And then we know about the 1980s. They introduced, what did they introduce? After the civil rights and all was passed and all, all that was passed, they introduced crack cocaine. We know about all of that. We know about all of that. And some of that is also a part of self-inflicted wounds by black folks. You know, who's going to make me use the drugs? Okay? We have to have the strength to resist those things as well. COINTELPRO, that's been around for decades. We know very much about that. When you look at the National Negro Press and all, which many of us have been reading for decades, what you've articulated, we are very much knowledgeable about all of that, but we want to talk about the solutions. How do we move forward with all of that? And we do not move forward with... Um, with looking at the white man as being something better. You know, he's supreme. He's dominant. He's white, he, that's white supremacy. There's nothing supreme about them. Nothing. Okay? I refer to it as whiteism. Okay? It's something negative, not positive. Supremacy, okay, God, the most high, supreme. Okay? No, no. We should not use words and phrases that constitute uh, putting... Uh, what Trump called barbaric and savage. Yep, Trump, Trump did say that about his people, okay? Putting that up on a pedestal, okay? When we do that, then we're beginning to move towards an area of solution. How do we move this wealth gap between black and white? How do we decrease that? How do we decrease it? And that's what I like to talk about, and that's what we do here on the Afro Synergy News Channel. We work towards that endeavor. Now, illegal immigration has had an immense negative effect, not positive, on black people in America. Talk to the blacks in California. That's why they're getting out of California. In fact, there's a negative 10% decrease of blacks leaving California. Because what? Because it's a sanctuary state. Sanctuary state means that that group, illegal aliens, they can create the rules and ordinances and laws that they want. We want uh, a driver's license. We want to be able to vote in local and municipal elections. This is what they're creating. We want to be able to marry a girl when she's 13 years old, which is a, down in Mexico, they can do that. So they want that in California. So they're changing the laws and the rules in California to match what 
their environment was from where they came from. So, and that's why Kamala Harris, when she first uh, decided to run for president, she said, the United States is going to go the way of California. All right. Now, for African-Americans, they rejected her. They rejected her, and that was good. Okay? Why? That's one reason right there. Because African-Americans did not agree with what she had to say about uh, what, the, what, what California is, is the way that the rest of America is going to go. Okay? That's not good for African-Americans. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, brother, I'm not saying that it's not a problem. I'm just saying that, 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 that we have to, you know, we operate from the perspective of African-centered holistic thinking. So, you know, we have to consider all, all of the factors that, that constitute, you know, this, the, the current situation that, that we in. So I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you on, you know, uh, you know, whatever impact you're saying that immigration has, I'm just saying we need to consider all of the factors. But I think Brother Amos has something he wanted to ask you. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm wanting to kind of uh, shift the conversation back to this current election just to keep our minds on, you know, what's, what's happening with this. Um, Buttigieg. Um, and I know we're a little over time, but we're going we gonna to continue to roll because I want to touch this and uh, also everything that's going on with coronavirus. Um, but... Buttigieg started with a questionable win in Iowa, and uh, lately he has been falling off. Uh, we know that he is an open homosexual running for president. And uh, Brother T. West, you touched on this on your program in dealing with him, Charles Barkley, uh, the homosexual agenda. Can you talk a little bit about that and, um, and how you feel he's going to be used uh, as as a pawn in that agenda going forward. Okay, well, fortunately, Buttigieg is just about all used up. <laughs> <laughs> no pun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, he's just about all used up. After the South Carolina primaries, which I think is next week, after those primaries, Buttigieg will know for certain that he has no chance of winning the Democrat nomination. Because down in South Carolina, most black folks are not going to vote for, uh, you know, Buttigieg. I mean, he's the female, uh, and, and the other guy is the is the husband. Okay? Mm. He's the wife. Mm. You know, most <laughs> black folks are not going to buy into that, you know, hey, uh, in the White House, you got two guys <laughs> necking and kissing each other. Uh, no, no, uh-uh, no. You, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, you know, uh, Namla, man, boy, love. White folks have done that for a long time. Yeah, and some okay. of that was some of that was going on in the White House under the bushes, right? <laughs> with those little boys yeah. they were bringing yeah. in. <laughs> but go ahead, oh, yeah. go ahead, brother. I don't, I don't want to get you off track. Keep going with your South Carolina thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but also, even with Obama, with Obama, uh, you know, Obama, he was the one who. Uh, created an executive order that empowered the son of Dwayne Wade to do what that boy is doing and trying to do, which is, you know, I want to be a girl. But not only that, that executive order said that these children, your children, should be able to decide which gender bathroom, restroom at school that they want to use. 
whether they're a boy or a girl. You know, the boy. Oh, I'm, I, I feel like I'm a girl. I was born. A, I feel like I feel like I was born a girl. So at school, I want to use the girls' restroom. This was an executive order by Barack Obama. Okay, which is which is totally totally contrast the opposite of what most Africans and African American values are. Okay. And then not only that, he lit the White House up in not red, black, and green, but in the LGBTQ colors. Okay? <laughs> so now we can talk about George W. Bush and what was going on uh, with grown men and, and, and boys and, and children. And all. We can talk about that. But, hey, do we have the courage to talk about Barack Obama? Do we have the courage to do that? Yeah, we do. Okay. Yeah, bro, if I may, we're not here to extol the virtues of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, Pelosi, Schumer, you know, all the carry water for the corporate state. You know, we are here to promote an individual agenda by looking at things holistically, but also contextualizing why things occur, i.e. immigration and just a whole list of, you know, topics that we can deal with. Yeah, but go ahead with what you were saying about uh, uh, Sweet Peter being, uh, you know, the end of his road down there in in South Carolina. He's a racist yeah, too, Buttigieg. man. Yes, Buttigieg. Okay. Yeah. Now, Buttigieg, with South Carolina, 2% or less, I actually think it's less than 2%, this is according to some polls, a black in South Carolina supports Pete Buttigieg. Okay. Mm. That means that in South Carolina, he is politically dead. Okay? Uh, politically dead. Now, with regards to South Carolina, uh, the winner of South Carolina, of course, is going to be between uh, Biden and Sanders. And Biden has said that, well, you know, I've got uh, uh, um, uh, Congressman uh, Jim Clyburn. He has endorsed me. Okay? So Biden thinks that he's got the black vote in South Carolina. But I think that Bernie is actually going to defeat Biden in South Carolina. Okay? Now, but more importantly, that speaks to the importance of the black vote in this country. We're the most loyal to the Democrat Party, the most loyal voters. And what that says is that black people should not collectively give away their vote to people who do not embrace the African-American's national political agenda. You don't give your votes away free. No, you need to get something in return for your vote. And that's why I propose to the Trump administration that between now and the November election that Trump comes up with a, a reparations executive order. That's what I have proposed. Now, that will help move things along. If he did that, it will help move things along in Congress. It will get that that 30-plus years of the H.R. 40 reparations bill sitting in committee out of committee in Congress. It would move it forward. The Democrats would have to move that bill forward. Do not give up your vote, black people, or any politicians for nothing. Let me ask like you this. You've been doing. 
Let me ask you this, Who brother T West. Um, yes. Hillary Clinton. Um, I saw somewhere where someone stated that it's a possibility of her joining, trying to join the ticket of Bloomberg. Um, what's her role in this whole uh, process of this uh, current coming election or the current election? And also, uh, Bloomberg, do you think he has a, a real chance at at winning with his ability to finance more for himself than the other candidates? Well, he has a chance of winning for two reasons. One is that the Democrat Party, the DNC, the, the bosses in the Democrat Party do not want Sanders, Bernie Sanders. So uh, they are going to put their backing behind uh, Mike Bloomberg. Bloomberg's money would be the second area. Bloomberg is trying to buy the nomination. He's trying to buy it. Now, he may be successful with it, but if he's successful with it, Bernie is not going to lay down without a serious, serious fight this time as he laid down when the Democrat Party did much of the same thing on behalf of Hillary Clinton uh, against Bernie Sanders. And if there is such a fight, that means that the Democrat Party will go into a general election against Donald Trump in a very dysfunctional way. That would mean that Trump would win the election by a huge, huge, and probably unprecedented landslide if it was Bernie, okay, with whoever vice president run mate he chooses, or if it was Mike Bloomberg, if he chose Hillary Clinton. Now, Hillary Clinton, her role, Hillary Clinton's role is to remain relevant, to continue to have her name in the light, in the spotlight, in focus. So therefore, if Bloomberg was to run, it is likely that Bloomberg, if he was to win the nomination, that is, he would likely choose Hillary Clinton as a vice president running mate. But even that ticket, Trump would also defeat that ticket of a Bloomberg Hillary Clinton. Now, of course, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, no, that will never happen as a ticket. Uh Uh-uh. No, never. So uh, those are my thoughts about uh, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, Money cannot buy you everything. It can't buy you everything. Even politically, it can't buy you everything. Uh, Trump's got money, too, and Trump's got a record. And as long as the economy is going quite well and the numbers look good, Trump will win re-election. You don't have, historically, you don't see presidents, incumbent presidents losing elections when you have very good economies. It, it, it simply, virtually don't happen. We have, uh, so you Go know, if, if I may, doctor, you know, just looking at real numbers, m- much of the job creation 
I was looking at this yesterday, a temporary jobs, part-time jobs, 15 hours a week job is given the same weight of a 40-hour a week job if a person is making $100,000. From the numbers I have, you got three people who own as much as 140 million people combined. Wages have stagnated from the time I was in high school in the mid-70s. You got 40 million people living in poverty. 6% African Americans are poor, 64% Hispanics. Of course, Sanders won in a state where at least you have a third Hispanic population. 66 million people who are poor, white, and low income. These are, in my view, real numbers. Suffice it to say, you know, these economic statistics, as the brother indicated, are basically uh, fabricated. Uh, if I'm looking for a job and I drop out the job uh, searching um, market after four months, I magically disappear. So Trump's, in my view, economic success is really his weakness if you look at real numbers. Okay, well, uh, those same methodologies of calculating existed under Obama also. So all things being equal, all things being equal, it amounts to the same thing. Uh, down in Mississippi, when ICE went in and raided those meatpacking plants down there in Mississippi, it was mostly and mainly young black men who became employed at those plants, getting paid pretty good hourly. In fact, those meatpacking plants, they actually upped their wages after ICE raided the plants and got the illegal aliens out of there. Now, what does that do? Now, some of them were employed in other jobs. They weren't making as much money, but some of them were unemployed, totally unemployed. They weren't working. So what does that do? That reduces the unemployment number. It reduces it. That's a good thing, not a negative thing, because brothers bringing home a paycheck you know, the sisters, the girlfriends, the wives, they're going to like that. The children, they're going to like that. So we should all applaud that, okay, when it happens. And that was because over 800 illegal aliens had been removed from those jobs there in Mississippi. And the Mississippi is part of the heart of the black Mecca in this country. So uh, those are my thoughts about the numbers. The numbers are relative, okay? They're relative uh, 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 whether Obama was president or whether under Trump. They're still calculating those unemployment numbers the same way they were calculating them when Obama was president. They're calculated the same way. Yeah, not, okay? not, no difference. Yeah, yeah, not here to extol the virtues of Obama, Trump, or nobody else. Uh, you know, like Dr. Wilson told us, you know, white supremacy is a global system permeating every area of human activity. Uh, Obama, no Obama, doesn't make any difference. Um, where are we with time, brother? He wanted, well, let me ask you, okay. let me he, ask you some more questions. Yeah, brother T. Wesson, uh, this will be the, uh, the final thing we'll touch on. Uh, coronavirus. Well, I did want to ask about Syria, but go oh, ahead. Okay. Uh, with this coronavirus, um, back in December or prior to December, I can't remember if it was Prior to December or back in December, Trump uh, had a trade deal with China. Was that in December or was that 
prior to December? I know it was late 2019. Yeah, it might have been a little bit prior to December. Okay. Um, so that took place, and then you have uh, coronavirus start to starting to spread. We had the doctor who warned the Chinese government that you know this was an issue and people needed to be quarantined. And now this has been an epidemic that is starting at least reports that we're getting from the mainstream media started to negatively affect the Chinese economy. There was a report that came out today um, on Bloomberg that stated that uh, millions of Chinese companies are um, in the threat to fail if the banks don't step in because of the effect of the coronavirus. Do you think that this was a biochemical warfare tactic that was initiated um, by any Israeli or uh, U.S. forces, or do you think that this is just a a random coincidence that now people are beginning to find ways to try to exploit or take advantage of? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Well, the, uh, my answer is this, and I've done a few programs about this. Uh, basically, that's unknown right now. Now, China, to my knowledge, China has not come out yet and said and put forward any evidence itself that this coronavirus was intentional and that it's a bioweapon. Now, it certainly is uh a bioweapon that can be used as a bioweapon it, it, it's uh it's something that does not does not happen naturally in in nature and when i say it doesn't happen naturally in nature i'm referring to it does not become a pandemic okay you can have a retrovirus now for some of the listeners they probably don't know what the term retrovirus means Retrovirus is when you take an animal virus and you combine it with human DNA. Okay? Next, and when I say combine it, I'm talking about like laboratory. Uh, you synthetically synthesize it in laboratories. Animal viruses cannot attack the human immune system and trigger a pandemic okay around the world they don't do that uh, animal viruses can affect a small number of people who happen to have weak immune systems their t-cells are weak okay an animal virus can affect those people okay now when your immune system is weak. So you don't have people, uh, just massive numbers of people with weak immune systems. You don't have that. So this plant, this uh, bio uh, uh, lab in Wuhan, China, that uh, over the last couple of months have became become a part of a lot of our vocabulary, Wuhan, China, prior to that, most people had probably haven't ever heard of Wuhan, China. That bio 
lab, which is level four, one of the highest, if not the highest level, a lab type laboratory, you had Western money that helped to form and uh, get that bio lab up and going. You have some Bill Gates money in there. You have some other Western money in there with that. But that said, that alone would not constitute or would not uh, cause me to say that this was an intentional bioweapon attack by the United States against China, even though the United States, they would have motives. Yes, they do. And even though the United States has in the past used bioweapons, especially against black people, you know, you have that. I mean, even though that's the case. But I would wait before jumping to any type of conclusions. I would wait to see what the Chinese themselves have to say about that, because ground zero for this uh, 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 coronavirus started in China. Okay, that does not mean that uh, China, that America was behind it. Doesn't mean that. But it doesn't mean that America was not behind it either. But again, we have to wait until China itself uh, do its own investigations to determine, uh, you know, how this all got started at that uh, level four laboratory there in Wuhan province of China. Uh, Bioweapons, the United States has been in the business of of, uh, manufacturing biological weapons for a long time. And even even, uh, ethnic-specific bioweapons. You know, that a lot of people call race-specific, that are designed to attack you based upon certain genetic, unique genetic characteristics about you. Okay, if we're looking at the African genome, they will look at some unique uh, cellular or biological or genetic characteristics that's unique to your group, and then structure and manufacture a bioweapon that would target primarily you, but would not harm or affect them. Now, I wrote a, an article in 1990. This was in a black newspaper in Arizona, in Phoenix, the Arizona Informant. And at that time, it was an article that I wrote uh, based upon Center for Disease Control Statistics, white females virtually did not contract HIV AIDS, white females in America. They didn't get it, okay? Because this was according to the CDC statistics. White women virtually did not contract HIV AIDS. That did not mean that they could not be carriers of HIV. In other words, if you as a black man, you could get it from that white woman. You could get HIV AIDS, AIDS which is uh, the part that uh, was killing a lot of people. But the white female virtually was not getting HIV AIDS. The only time white females would get it would be if it involved a blood transfusion. And then AIDS could kill them. Okay? Uh, just like Arthur Ashe. Blood transfusion, it killed uh, Arthur Ashe. He had a blood transfusion. He was black. But it had killed white females through a blood transfusion. So 
My point of saying that is this, is that it has long been possible and uh, the United States has long had the capability, not only the United States, some other countries as well, to produce biological weapons that could target certain unique biological or genetic characteristics with specific groups of people. Israel bragged many, many years ago about having that capability. The Israelis did. So these things are possible. In 1969, you had a Senate bill, U.S. Senate bill. It was called Public Law 91-171. And it was entitled Synthetic, meaning man-made, biological agents. Synthetic biological agents. And the House bill was 15090. That was 1969. And there was a, a discussion in the U.S. Congress about that. And let me say this before I say, say, say this. The United States for over 10 years refused to sign the United Nations Genocide Treaty. They refused to sign it. Okay? And the United States did not sign it until the U.S. Senate rewrote that genocide treaty. Then they ratified it. They signed it. The reason why they didn't sign it was because the United States had been practicing genocide the government now so in 1969 members of congress some of them said well shouldn't we be, be concerned about this what you're doing right now the manufacturing of these synthetic biological agents becoming yet another mass killer of people okay again be concerned and there was, and then the response was, you know, well, we need to experiment with this because if the other side get it, if the enemies get this, you know, they'll be, you know, basically they'll be ahead of us in this uh, biological, uh, synthetic biological agents area. And then another congressman asked the question, how long will it take to manufacture it? This was 1969 now. Do the, we're going to do the math in a minute. How long will it take to manufacture it? And how much will it cost? The cost, the answer was $10 million. And the time frame was 10 years, and it will be ready. So when you do the math, 1969, 1970, that would put us in 1980. So in 1980, you learn that Rock Hudson, the actor, friend of Ronald Reagan, had what was originally called GRIDS. GRIDS means gay-related immune deficiency syndrome. So Rock Hudson, being a white man, AIDS killed him. Okay? Then, but at the same time, this same thing dubbed as HIV. He had HIV-1 and he had HIV-2. The other version of this was killing women and children and men over in Africa, in Central Africa, was killing them. So they redubbed it from GRIDS because first it was like a gay, it's a gay thing, you know? They renamed it to AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. They renamed it. But it was killing blacks in Africa. It didn't matter the sex. It didn't matter your age. It was killing babies, okay? So here in America, there was a different version of it. And initially, it was killing 
white men, homosexual men. These, the men who took, who read the ad in magazines here in the United States, uh, gay homosexual magazines, that um, uh, the Department of Health or Center for Disease Control, they were offering free uh, hepatitis B vaccinations. Those men who saw that ad and went down to get the hepatitis B vaccinations, they acquired AIDS from it. They died. Okay, so here in the United States of America, America is known for being a manufacturer of synthetic biological agents, retroviruses. They're known for doing that. But with the coronavirus, I cannot conclude based upon what I know right now. And China would be the first ones who who would come out and say it if the United States had any role in this whole coronavirus situation that struck China. Of course, the United States, they have a motive, of course. All you have to do is listen to uh, Attorney General William Barr. I covered a little bit of what he said uh, recently about China and the threat of China and about China being the greatest threat to the United States, okay, economically and, you know, possibly militarily. Not Russia, but China. Okay. So uh, those are my thoughts on that. So uh, once again, I cannot conclude right now that it was a biological attack upon China by the United States. I cannot draw that conclusion yet. China would have to first make that conclusion and make their findings public before we could even consider that. All right. All right, brother. Yeah, one one final question. Uh, One thing I've always appreciated about Afro-Synergy is – uh, you've been, you've always been at the forefront of geopolitical analysis of uh, things that are taking place, uh, actions by the American Empire and uh, other uh, forces in the world. And w- I know one of the most recent things that you have been discussing uh, are the uh, the military conflict in Syria in the uh, Idlib uh, province uh, that that now involves. Uh, not only Syria versus uh, the rebels, primarily uh, uh, affiliates of al-Qaeda, but also uh, Turkey and uh, the Russians. Uh, so a lot of people think that this, is a, this is a, has a, a tremendous potential to, to blow up and become a wider uh, conflict. Uh, give give me your, your your latest thoughts on 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 what you what you are seeing there, and the impact that it has for us. Because we 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 look at everything from the impact that 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 things have for us as people of African descent, because we're not isolated in the world. Everything that happens, uh, like Malcolm said, you can't understand the Congo unless you understand Mississippi, and vice versa. So. Uh, Talk to us about that. Um, like I said, I've always appreciated your geopolitical analysis. Okay, so that was about, uh, you say, uh, China, or was that about Syria? Syria. The Idlib, Syria. The, the conflict in the Idlib province. Yeah, the Idlib province. Okay, now, historically, you have the Ottoman Empire from at least the 15th century uh, and then for uh, a, a number of long years, a few hundred years. You have the Ottoman Empire. And Idlib was a part, was the capital city of the Ottoman Empire. 
But you know, the Ottoman Empire, it dissipated long ago. And Turkey was a big part of the Ottoman Empire. And you have some individuals within the Turkish leadership who have these grandeur visions of once again establishing something similar to the Ottoman Empire. So therefore, uh, you have Turkish engagement militarily and otherwise in places like Syria, Libya, uh, even Iraq, uh, engagement in these areas. So meddling, so to speak. And in Syria, from at least 2011, at least that period of time, Turkey facilitated the movement of uh, terrorists coming from mostly France through Turkey and into Syria, <laughs> excuse me, with the purpose of overthrowing the Syrian government. Now, before Assad, you had Assad's father who ruled in Syria. And you had some nasty unrest under Assad's father of uh, uh, some Turks trying to overthrow Syria at that time. So this is an ongoing thing that's related to some of the ethnic Turks and all, and the influence that Turkey has in some parts of Syria, especially uh, in areas close to the border of, of Turkey, in places like Idlib. So Turkey helped facilitate the movement of these terrorists into Syria with the purpose of overthrowing the Syrian government. They killed hundreds of thousands of people, destroyed literally billions of dollars of infrastructure. And they had the support of Israel, United States, Britain, France, uh, Qatar. And for one, one while, they even had the support of Saudi Arabia, too. So they had the support against uh, Syria. And so Syria was standing alone except for Iran was helping Syria to fight back. And eventually, uh, in 2014, what the president of Syria did, he invited Russia to come in and help put an end to the terrorists. After all, you had, it was like a gang rape, just like Libya. Libya against Gaddafi, that was a gang rape because it was the same actors, the same actors, okay, the enslavers, the colonizers, which would include white Europeans, Americans, and some Arab states, all of them did all these ugly things to black folks. They unified together and gang-raped Libya. So you saw the same thing happening against Syria. It was a gang rape. That was the attempt. So when Syria invited Russia in, Bashar al-Assad asked Putin to come in with military, with the military. That, over about a two-year period, that put an end to uh, the terrorists in Syria. And that was also during the transition from Obama to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was saying, we need to remove our troops from Syria anyway. We need to take them all out of Syria. Which is good. I agree with that. All of them should be out. So, uh, but there's pushback. There's always pushback from the deep state, from the Pentagon, 
from the so-called intelligence communities, this pushback. So that pushback happened where um, they, the United States have kept these troops in Syria in the area where the oil wells are. So a few days ago, you saw an American, a large American military uh, armed personnel carrier uh, push a Russian vehicle, smaller vehicle, off the road in Syria. Now, Russia warned the Pentagon against that behavior, telling them, you know, basically, some very bad things can happen if this continues in Syria. After all, the United States is not a guest in Syria. They were not invited there. They are there illegally in Syria. Now, uh, there are those who say and believe in that America should enforce its will against whom it wants, as often as it wants, okay? And there's no reason why the United States cannot rule until the end of time. Now, that was the ideology of the Bush-Cheney administration. And that ideology is still being promoted inside and outside of government, whether Mad Dog, Chicken Hawk, John Bolton is in government or outside of government. That is still what's being promoted uh, against Syria and also against other countries, including Venezuela. That's what's being promoted. So uh, uh, the United States will not fare well at all in Syria. Uh, right now, as far as um, if you were to ask which country, which leader appears to be most statesman, statesmanlike between Russia and the United States, people would say Russia. You know, it was Russia who said to the United States, we don't want your homosexual agenda here in Russia. In fact, we're not going to allow you to adopt any more Russian children because you cannot guarantee that they will not end up in homosexual homes. For example, homes such as uh, Buttigieg and his male lover. <laughs> they won't end up in families like that. So what did the Obama administration do? They sanctioned Russia, just like they threatened to sanction African countries who object to the homosexual agenda. You have an African uh, ambassador, an African leader right now, who cannot come to the United States. Because one reason, he rejects the homosexual agenda. And he's been very vocal about rejecting that agenda. Now, but fortunately, three years ago, Donald Trump got rid of Obama's uh, uh, executive order that uh, allowed your child, your male, your boy, to say, I'm a girl, so therefore I need to use the girl's bathroom, or your daughter. I'm a boy, so therefore I should be able to use the boys' restroom. So, um, uh, but with Syria, uh, in conclusion, with Syria, the United States will not fare well in Syria at all. And it, and it does not serve America up in the eyes of the rest of the world in a good light for what the United States has been doing, and to some extent continues to do in Syria. Not only Syria, but Iraq too. The Iraq parliament has said, out. We want the American military out of Iraq. But the United States 
in defiance, is saying, we're not leaving. Militarily, we're not leaving. But eventually, what you will see with the United States, you will see some similar things that happened to the British Empire. You will see those things beginning to happen to the American Empire. You will see it uh, disintegrating and uh, losing power more and more around the world. And it's already happening right now, even. South China Sea, uh, with that whole situation about the South China Sea, with China, all of that. Um, the days of America being the big bully, those days are ending. They're ending. And rightfully so. You know, chattel slavery would not have existence for so long here in the United States had this country not been the bully that it is, having the power that it has to do what it wanted to do to black people here in America. And that's why I say, black folks, they need to wisen up and come off that Dixie crap plantation. <laughs> come on, folks. Well, Brother T. West, uh, it's definitely been a pleasure speaking with you this morning. And uh, you unpacked a lot of information. Um, we are over time, but uh, do you have any final comments for our guests uh, before we close out? Well, I appreciate you all inviting me to your program. Uh, we had to uh, improvise, didn't we? Oh, yeah. To get this up and going. <laughs> but we did. That's right. We did. Uh, so I appreciate uh, uh, all of the comments and the questions that uh, both of you, my dear brothers, uh, raised in this program because that is how we're going to move forward is through um, each one of us talking to each other, having a dialogue, having a discussion, having even debate, you know, and then seeing uh, what are the most sound principles for moving forward. When we get those sound principles and guidelines and we agree on those things, then let's push forward and let's move towards our goal and our goal is to change the situation in america and get what has long been ours and been deserved by the descendants of those who built this country built the great wealth of this country built the white house and other buildings across this country marched across the wall on wall street that's what it was named after. It was a wall there, and black folks were marched across that wall and auctioned off on slave blocks there in New York City. So we have to uh, know that fact, know those histories, know those truths, and then most importantly, teach it to other people, share it with other people so that we will have a mountain of knowledge flowing down to the black masses, not only the black masses, because other people too. We have, we do have some allies. I do not totally agree with the late great John Henry Clark when he says we have no allies. We do have some, okay? But we have to know who they are. We have to vet them. We do. So uh, we have to move forward, and we have to move forward together. So thank both of you brothers uh, for the invitation to your program. All right, brother. Well, this has been another edition of African Liberation Media with Afro Synergy News. Uh, you can check us out online, social media, and also you can also check out Brother T. West's program, Afro Synergy News, on YouTube, uh, BB for Hodier. BB for Hodier. Thank you, Doctor. Power or the lack of power. 
I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power. Uh, if it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.